to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be continuing in our march through that chapter. I feel blessed to be surrounded by all these boxes. Do we have a, Mary, do we have a number on these? Just curiosity, really? Where's Mary? She's there. So, 64 here and elsewhere. That's wonderful. Praise God. That is. It's really great. <laughs> Plus online orders. No way to track that. You know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, we've been looking at chapter 18 these past couple of weeks as life together. Uh, that's the theme of this chapter. He's brought his disciples together and he is teaching them how to live life together. And I've been using uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, as, as kind of a template for this, uh, drawing from it. He wrote that book in the 30s when the Nazi regime was, was pushing in and, and he began to realize what was being taken away. You know, sometimes you don't realize what, how valuable something is until it's taken away. I mean, in many senses of the word, and, and that we can really understand that going through the pandemic, what was taken away from us, we truly long to have, and that is life together. And, and so uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this little book. I encourage you to read it if you haven't. And in it, he writes this. By sheer grace... God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences of lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of emotions, but of truth. Only that church which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a church, both are better. A church which insists upon keeping its illusion of perfection when it should be shattered, permanently loses the moment of promise of Christian community. He concludes, sooner or later it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the church is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Have you ever wondered why people leave churches? There's many reasons, obviously. But one of them is because their dream of what the church should be has been shattered. Most everybody comes into church with some dream of how that church body will live together. And it's usually somewhere on the scale of perfect people living perfectly together. 
And when disagreements bubble up, relational issues arise, or brothers and sisters fall into sin and wander away, people are surprised, people are shocked, even angry. Bonhoeffer is so wise in saying here that your particular dream of Christian community needs to be shattered. Because wherever sinners gather, there will be sin. And we have to learn to live together as sinners. And that's what Jesus is pushing in on here in our text today. He began back in chapter, uh, beginning of chapter 18, teaching us what it's like to live together. And so far we have looked at what the mark of a Christian community should be humility. It should be defined by humility. We need to become like children, he says in the opening verses. Not looking for position or privilege or status. And leaving our crowns in the garage as we have, have come to talk about it. Secondly, the church is to be filled with people who are serious about holiness. Not only humble, but serious about holiness. Both your holiness and the holiness of others. You're to be concerned about each other's holiness. We're to help each other to be holy. Deeply committed to each other. Speaking into each other's lives. Loving each other enough to care, to say something. Loving each other to such an extent that, and here we enter into our text today, when one wanders from the faith, when one removes themselves, when one goes away from life together, we care enough to go after them. We read this in our text today, starting in verse 10 of 18. God's word says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that even that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does not he leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine who never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go to him. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And he refuses to listen even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus has just told us back in verse 7 of this, of this teaching that the world is 
full of temptations. This is a broken world. This is a world that is full of brokenness and temptations. Our flesh is drawn to the world. So what are we to do in church when a person succumbs to that temptation and falls? That's what Jesus is addressing here. How are we supposed to act? How are we supposed to do life together if one of those is, leaves that life together? And I think the first thing he's showing us here is that we are to care for the wandering. We are to care deeply for the wandering. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says there, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, little ones in, in chapter 18, children is used three times, little ones that is referring to the children that is used additional three times. That's talking about believers. He has put a child in there as, as, as an example, but he's not talking about children. He's talking about believers, little ones. He's calling them children. So here Jesus is saying, be careful that we do not have a hard heart towards those fellow believers, those brothers and sisters who fall into sin. Be careful of your heart. Don't look down on them. Don't reject them. Don't despise them is the word he uses. I mean, in scripture, there are, there are various ways that we despise one another. In James chapter uh, two, it talks about a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacks daily food. And you don't do anything for them. You say, oh, go, go in peace. My prayers are with you. And you don't do anything. You're despising a brother. We can despise one another by flaunting our liberty. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 14. When, when a, a brother who... who who can't eat meat and you can't eat meat and you just flaunt your liberty in front of them. You are saying you're despising that brother. He ends that by saying, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother, he says in Romans 14. We can despise one another by showing partiality. Again, going back to James. James, James is replete with this in chapter 2. Says if you pay attention to one who wears fine clothing and you say sit here at this good place while saying to the poor man, you stand over there, sit at my feet. You're showing partiality. James is saying you're you're despising one another. And here we can despise one another by being indifferent to a brother or sister who has fallen into temptation. Being indifferent. You can despise them. Jesus tells us not to act that way towards one who sins because in verse 10 it says, the angels in heaven always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Boy, what an enigmatic verse. And those of you who are sitting here going, I can't wait to hear what he's going to say, how he's going to explain that. It's going to be very dissatisfying. Some people use this verse as a proof text for guardian angels. I don't think it fits this context very well. I think you could probably go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 for that. But not this verse. Some interpret angels as, as some part of our soul in heaven. I, I, that doesn't seem to, to fit the theology of the Bible. 
Jesus seems to be saying here that angels are in some way, and this is where it's going to be very dissatisfying, some way connected to us. Not spiritually. And since they are in the presence of God, every believer is valuable. Valuable. Value is what is being portrayed here. Value is what is being portrayed here. Every believer is valuable, is worthy of care, concern, and not to be despised. Why do we need this admonishment? Why do we need Jesus to say, don't despise a sinner? Why do we need that admonishment? Because I think our hearts are pretty hard towards people who sin. Pretty judgmental towards people who sin. Naturally. Not every time, but in general. When a brother or father or brother or falls into some kind of sexual sin, inside we kind of get irked by that. Or we hear a sister who has slandered or gossiped and caused division in the church, it angers us. Our kind of fleshly reaction is is frustration and anger. And not a softness. And that's what our reaction should be. Empathy, humility, and action. Empathy, humility, and action. Empathy because we love that person. We love them and and we know that they're in harm's way. Jesus expresses this type of of empathy and sorrow and compassion when he's approaching Jerusalem and, and he knows they're going to crucify him and they have rejected him for hundreds and hundreds of years and yet he's going towards Jerusalem to give his very life for them and he falls on his knees and says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I would wish that I could gather you in my arms. I love you. His heart is broken for them. Even though their hearts are hard even though they're in sin. Humility. We have to approach a brother or sister in humility because we have to realize, and this is preaching the gospel to ourselves, that that we are just as sinful as they are. No matter what sin we're talking about here. Galatians 2 Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual gentleness, keeping watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Why do you think the Spirit had that little tagline put on there? Go, go and restore them, but be careful. Why? Because we are just as sinful. Thomas Akempis says, If you see another stumble or fall, let your first thought be that, of all men, you are most likely to stumble and fall in that same manner. What a great thing to remind ourselves as we go towards a brother or sister. Empathy, humility, and finally, action. And that is what Jesus is teaching us here. First by example in verses 10 through 14. This is perhaps one of the best, best well-known of Jesus' parables. There's a lot of parables that we know very well. This one is very well known. And when we think of this parable, we we typically think of this parable in the context of the lost out in the world, don't we? I mean, as I was doing my my research and my my exegesis this week, 
I can't tell you how many times that, that, that was put in that context of go and seek those who don't know Jesus. You know, it's put in context of us going out into the world seeking, seeking the lost. And there's truth to that. <laughs> I mean, you can apply it in that way because we are to do that. It is a picture of the gospel. This is a wonderful picture of the gospel. Christ left everything for us, right? He left the 99. He left the glory of heaven. We're about to go into the Christian, uh, Christian Christmas season, well, the Christian season, and, and we're going to be singing a lot of, of Christmas hymns. And one of them that we're going to be singing probably multiple times, you'll probably hear it multiple times on the radio, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one of the lines there that Charles Wesley writes is, Mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. But that first, that first line, mild he lays his glory by, that, that is what he is doing as he comes in, in, in the flesh. He's laying his glory by. Part of what we will be celebrating this Christmas season is that Jesus laid his glory aside and came down, born in flesh, living a perfect, perfect life, being God and fully human. All the temptations that we have, all the, this broken world offers, he was tempted by, yet sinned not, thus earning a righteousness earning. He earned the righteousness that Adam did not. And having that righteousness, he went to the cross and he died for us. And he, he in, in that moment, as a person gives their life to them, he takes that perfect record, that holiness that he earned, and he gives it willingly to that person. And he takes from that person their sinful record Martin Luther said when Jesus hung on the cross, he was the most sinful man who had ever lived. Taking your sin and paying the punishment for it by dying a horrible death and being buried for three days. And yet that's not the end. He rose in power as we have sang and heard today. Conquering sin, conquering the curse, conquering death. Conquering Satan. So that those who place their trust in him will be raised from the earth, as Charles Wesley wrote. They will be given second birth, as he wrote. Born again. Now that, this parable can easily fit into that paradigm. But that's not the context here. The context is not... Evangelism, the context of Matthew 18 is discipleship. Context of living life together in the local church. More specifically, the context is restoration. Jesus is giving us an example of how we should pursue a brother or sister who has wandered from the faith. And what we can glean from these four verses right here is that first, Christ values each and every sheep. Christ values each 
and every sheep. If you look at verse 12, it says, what do you think? He asks a question. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one who went astray? There's an island off the, off the island of Long Island. An island off an island. Heart Island, it's called. It's found a little way off the coast. Nobody lives on Heart Island. However, there are a million bodies there. A million bodies. Bodies that have been buried there. It's a burial ground for the homeless, for the stillborn, for poor immigrants, for those who die penniless. It's a wasteland of forgotten dead, they say. It's very interesting. In the middle of that island is a huge cross. And on the crossbeam of that cross is written, He knows us all by name. To Christ, nobody is nameless. Nobody is worthless. No one is valueless. No one is discarded. No one's sin is so great that they are cast away. No one. None of his sheep. However, that's what Satan whispers to our flesh, isn't it? You're worthless. That's what Satan tempts you with when you sin. You're worthless. Who's going to come to get you? Why would they even leave to come and get you? That's what our sin believes, starts believing. You're not even worth searching for. But Christ wants to shatter that understanding here today. He's giving us a picture of how valuable you are. A shepherd leaving the 99 in search of the one. A shepherd risking all 99 to go after the one. That's a picture of great value. Do you know what this is? It's a painting that's comprised literally of three colors. Something perhaps a grade schooler could do. Really nothing too spectacular about it. I would imagine if I saw this at a garage sale, I'd just keep walking. That's not something I would hang on my wall. In November of 2012, it sold for $75 million. Do you know why it sold for $75 million? It's a Rothko. It's a Rothko. Mark Rothko created it. And because Mark Rothko is the, is the painter, it has that much value. Ephesians 2.20 says this. You are God's masterpiece. You're God's masterpiece. You're valuable because who made you. You're valuable because of who died for you and recreated you and gave you second birth. Jesus Christ gave his life so that we might be born again. And you are his masterpiece. 
And he never, ever, ever abandons his masterpiece. And that's the second thing we learn from Christ's example. Christ seeks us when we go astray. He seeks us when we go astray. Mark Twain once said, man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. When we feel shame, we react. Instead of looking to God or looking to one another, when we sin and we feel shame, we react. And nine times out of ten, sometimes ten times out of ten, we leave. The shame of what we have done causes us to leave the safety of the flock. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor over the 20 years I've been here that I haven't seen somebody for a while and I reach out and I reach out and I reach out and I find out that some sin. Sin separates. We feel shame. We don't want to look God in the eyes. We don't want to look each other in the eyes. So we wander. We stray. But what we have to know deep down in our hearts and souls is that Christ will always pursue you. We see this in the very first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, don't we? They sin and what does God do? He comes and he asks the question, where are you? Why does he ask the question, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where they are. He's giving them the opportunity, come back, come back. And that's what we have to hear when we have the temptation to go astray and wander and hide. God is always going to be going, where are you? Come back, come back. He's coming to offer them restoration. And look what the restoration looks like in verse 13. The restoration looks like this. If, when he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. He says, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any of these little ones should perish. We have to remember that Christ rejoices when we return. Christ rejoices when we return. The catacombs in Rome is a labyrinth of tunnels underneath the city. It is there that our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago hid from Roman persecution, wave after wave after wave of, of persecution that came to them. It was there they lived. It was there they hid and worshipped. It was there that they were buried. You walk and you see in the walls, burial, burial, burial after burial. These walls are covered with images as well to encourage them while they were enduring the, this persecution, to remind them of their faith. There's, there's images all over, but three are predominant in the catacombs. The first one, and we sang about it this morning, is the anchor. They carved anchors into rock. They painted anchors to remind them of the anchor that is mentioned in Hebrews 6, that is a sure and steady anchor for their soul. Jesus Christ and the promise of Jesus Christ is a sure and steady anchor for their soul. I have security in Christ, it reminded them of. Second one is the loaves and fishes. 
of all the Gospels here in Matthew 14. It's a reminder that Christ will always take care of them. Christ will always take care of you. And the third image and most prevalent image on the walls of the catacombs is that of a shepherd with a lone sheep draped over his shoulders walking back to the flock. This parable. They painted it all over the catechisms. Reminding them that Christ will always, always, always come after them. He'll never leave them. Never forsake them. They needed that reminder. Because I'm sure some of them had brothers or, or, or relatives or, or brothers and sisters in the Christ who succumbed to the pressure of persecution. And left. Or perhaps they were tempted in that same way. It's reminding them that Christ will always seek them out, always pursue them, even when they're wayward. And that heaven erupts in joy when they are found, when they come back. And we must keep this in mind when we wander away and hide because of our sin, that there is joy when you come back. There's no condemnation when you come back. There's a celebration in restoration. And that is what we have to keep in mind as we show our concern for the lost. And that's the second half of our text today is showing our concern for the lost. James Boyce wrote, The Lord exercises his care for his people Through his people. God exercises his care for his people through his people. That's what verses 15 through 20 are teaching us. This is the traditional text of of church discipline. And how many approach it or read it is in a very negative light. They they read these texts and it's, it's a very negative approach people have to it. But I'd like to remind us of the context. Jesus has just shown us incredible concern for the wandering. And he's saying here, go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, go and do likewise. When you see a brother or sister wandering, when you see a brother or sister pulling away from the body, pursue, leave, and go. Care enough to go. That's what verse 15 says. If your brother sins against you, what's the next word? Go. Just like Jesus. Leave the 99. Care enough to go. We're to go and seek and find and restore just like Jesus. We have a God-given responsibility. That's what Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is telling us. We have a God-given responsibility for each other. And when you do go, it's a delicate and gracious process that we are to go with. Notice just several things about this. First, church discipline is not meant to shame. Church discipline is not meant to shame. That's the negative approach that we have towards this text. Because we think it's, it's incredibly punitive. It's not. 
as Thomas Akempis said, I could stumble in this same way and maybe have. The circle is kept as small as possible, if you notice, so that we guard their reputation. It's a gracious process. Notice also that it is a process. First one goes, then two or three go, and if they don't respond, then just the church, not the town, not the community, not Facebook, not Instagram, the people that are to care for that brother or sister. The people who have the God-given responsibility to care for them. Notice it's evidentiary. The charge against the person is not hearsay. It's established by two or three witnesses. That is to say, the sin is outward, it's serious, and it's unrepentant. We see this. And this brother is still unrepentant. And notice also, it's the responsibility of the church. Again, the Lord exercises his care for his people through his people. Verse 18 and 19, we see again there the language of loosing and binding, which we talked about in chapter 16. The language of ask, and it will be done. All those are pointing to the authority and power that the church has and the responsibility the church has. But I want us to notice most of all, and this is what I want to leave you with, is that church discipline is restorative in nature. Church discipline, the goal of church discipline is to restore the brother. Again, the, the shepherd leaves the 99, goes to the one, puts him on his shoulders, comes back to the flock and restores that sheep back to the flock. That's the motivation for doing anything like this in a body of Christ. To restore the brother. To bring them back to the 99. So in verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, it says, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. So even if we go all the way, even if a church goes all the way to excommunication, we must remember verse 14. What is verse 14? He doesn't want anyone to perish. He he doesn't want anyone to be cast away forever. It's restorative. A tax collector describes a Jew who has forsaken the covenant. A Gentile is one who was not in the covenant. And so what do you do with people that are outside the covenant? You evangelize them. You tell them the gospel. You give them the hope. You tell them that God will always forgive. What did we just quote in 1 John 1.9? When you sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive some sin. And will forgive the smaller sins. And will forgive not the venial sins, but the, not the moral sin. He'll forgive everything. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So even if the church discipline goes unheeded, we continue to go after that lost sheep again and again and again, never forsaking them, wooing them with the gospel, describing the deep, deep love of God in Christ. 
And when they do return to the fold, and that's the goal, when they do return to the fold, what are we to do? Rejoice. Rejoice. It's very funny. In 2 Corinthians uh, 2.6, Paul admonishes the Corinthian church for not returning that man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was sleeping with his stepmother, not, re- not, not rejoicing when he repented. He admonishes them. He says, no, no. The, the, let him back in. Receive him with joy. In other words, forgive him as you have been forgiven. And that's exactly where Jesus is going next. If you look down at your Bible, you'll see that the next parable he is going to expound is on the unmerciful servant, one who is unforgiving. Why does he do that? Because that's our hearts. And that's next week. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray that we have your heart, that we will not harden our hearts against those who sin. We will not judge them and cast them away. We will not become angry with them and bitter and frustrated. Our hearts will break like yours does and leave and go and find and restore. Help us to be that type of church, Heavenly Father, that is one that is after your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.